Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Good morning. On April 10th, 1922, Critical, and it's WBT's WBT was born. And I remember we would listen to WBT. Yeah, this is a big broadcast for WBT. Martin, let's call Look at that day out there. What do you want to hear tonight? Hello, WBT. You're on the air. Hello, Bob Lacey. Hello there, neighbor. Hello, first-timer. Let's take it by Trapuca. Let's go! First best. Scored by Charlotte Hornet. History's been made. Hurricane Hugo has made landfall. Yeah, no power. No information coming into the station other than the telephone. It's a very special radio station because people care. It's the John Hancock radio program. Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion. With their first touchdown. Bank of America Stadium. Kind of jumping back and forth in our coverage here. Long, strange trip. It's still in. Throw me in the pool, please. Ray Carew's managed to evade police. David Chadwick. The plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. It would appear purposeful. be the first to welcome you to our little club thingy. I'm Stacey Sims. Charlotte's Mr. Wright. Carolina Panthers are headed to Super Bowl 50. The Star Eels are going to win the National What's going to be the impact of this? We may see some serious issues here at midnight. We're providing insight that they're not getting anywhere else. Mr. Trump, welcome to Charlotte Radio. Good morning, Bob. Hey, gather around, my friends, in this mythical ballot. WBT. The great colossus of the South. Through the years. I love this radio station as much as you guys do, but I love this radio station because of you guys. This powerful voice of the good stuff. This is Bo Thompson's Century Podcast. So here we are, the latest episode of my uh, WBT Century podcast, and this is the first time that I am talking to somebody. Now, he has quite a radio career and plenty of radio experience, but uh, his main connection to WBT and uh, the the whole building here was not in an all-air capacity. My guest today is uh, one of the, the most legendary general managers we've ever had, and I'll reinforce a lot of that because it's not just me saying that. I have a lot of other people uh, actually in these very podcasts that have talked about my next guest and uh, said things about him, but it's an honor for me, because I worked for him for a long time, to welcome Rick Jackson to the uh, Century Podcast Studio. Rick, thank you for being here. It's an honor. Truly an honor. What's it like to walk back into this building? <laughs> it's very strange. Well, I was glad to see that a lot of it hasn't changed. You know, a lot of it's kind of what, uh, when I walked out the door in 2009, the way it looked back then. So it's kind of, it's great to be back in here, though. I can hear all those voices in my head, I can tell you, as I walk around the rooms. Well, one very cool thing that I just did a few moments ago, Rick came in and we walked around. Because of the pandemic, uh, there are not as many people here as there normally would be. And back in the heyday of the Rick Jackson era, it was a lot more uh, hustle and bustle. But hopefully that will come back. But uh, we walked around and uh, talked to a few people here. But one of the things that I witnessed a few minutes ago, and I even snapped a picture of it, is you looking at the wall back in the, the, the management suite where the Hall of Fame currently resides. We'll get to this in more degree and detail later, but there you were looking at the wall of, of busts of Hall of Famers 
and you were the guy who created the Hall of Fame. It was your idea mm-hmm. back in 1997 to launch that. So that, that had to be pretty cool to, to just sit there and soak in. You know why that happened? We have a, a joint operation here with television and radio. When I was back here, we were both owned by the same company, Jefferson Pilot. And we had a television general manager, and I don't know if you remember, but down in the old days of the commissary, we had a place we'd go eat mm-hmm. and uh, kind of uh, and, and talk to everybody. And it was cool because the television people were there and all the radio people were there, and we'd have uh, a place to meet, kind of our town hall. The Pine Terrace. Place. The Pine Terrace. And we had the most wonderful wall of all of these pictures of the Briar Hoppers and Arthur Smith and Grady Cole and all these uh, legendary names, Charles Crutchfield. And he took it down. <laughs> and he didn't talk to any of us about it. He just took it down. And it really upset me. And it upset a lot of people around the building, too. And, and I'd been thinking about this for a while. With a radio station like WBT, you know, here we were already at 75 or 80 years at that point. And I thought, we need to have a place that we can control where the television general manager can't just come in and take it down. And really, it was time anyway. So, you know, I think a lot of other people had thought about it, too. But we just decided that was the time to do it. Plus, Charles Crutchfield, who was clearly going to be the first person to be inducted, was getting older. And I wanted to be sure that we got that done before he passed. And we did, about five years before. Well, like I said, we'll talk more about how that was created uh, in a few minutes and uh, some of the people that are in it. But I always like to start these conversations uh, because there are people who love the station uh, that will listen to these. And uh, I hope there are people who don't know much about the station that will find their way here and and learn more about the history of uh, what is a rare thing. I mean, a 100 or almost 100 year old radio station and a legacy. And so I want to start with you. Uh, You your radio career precedes this building, and uh, I know you most recently coming from uh, from Colorado, uh, and you spent, uh, if my math is correct on this, you were uh, there in Colorado until 1992, so 1980 through 1992, is that right? That's right. This was owned by Jefferson Pilot, too, which is important because these, these stations here were also owned by Jefferson Pilot back then, one of the great broadcasters of all time, in my opinion. I mean, they're just a great company to work for, and I was working in Denver as the first morning man for a legendary station there. Not at the time. It's only been on the air now for, for 41 years. So not, uh, nothing to compare to WBT's existence, but um, it has become one of the preeminent country stations in the country. And I was their first morning man there. And uh, I made the strangest transition from literally the day before I came here. I was jumping out of a plane in a fundraiser and broadcasting live for a weekend for juvenile diabetes there. And the next day I started here. So I went from a country jock to a, to um, the general manager of the most important voice radio's ever had in Charlotte. And it was a shocking transition. Difficult one. Now, uh, when did you start your radio career altogether? 1974. And where was that? That was in a little station in Brighton, Colorado, 500 watts. To give people an idea, this is 50,000 watts. So I covered most of the downtown area of Brighton, which is about a block. <laughs> so and then, that was my start. And then you went from there. Uh, so so how many stops were there between there and uh, Colorado? There were all country stations, uh, that one, and then KERE, then KLAK, then KYGO, and then here. Okay, so uh, you get to, to Colorado, and, and was that the first place where you worked for Jefferson Pilot? Yeah. 
1980. So people need to know, and for my own context here, when you started there in 1980, how big a company was Jefferson Pilot Communications? Well, I, if you'd asked me back then, I would have had no idea, because at that point, nobody knew anything about Jefferson Pilot in the West, even though we had San Diego, too, in Denver. JP was a regional southern company. Um, so I think back at that point, it was Miami, Charlotte, Atlanta, San Diego, and Denver. And then, uh, so you spent, uh, what, uh, we said uh, 12 years in Denver? Right. All uh, of those in mornings. And you were on the air. Were you in a management position there, too? Yeah, I was the program director, okay. too. And so those years, uh, could you have ever have imagined that you'd end up being uh, uh, the GM in Charlotte back, that, back no. during those times? I'm still in shock. <laughs> I think everybody else is, too. <laughs> no. I think when they named me GM here, I think a lot of people went, have you, have you watched Ted Lasso? <laughs> I, I know of it. I'm yeah. Ted Lasso. I mean, really, it's it's just the truth. I mean, he took a job, Ted Lasso, in at a, of a major soccer team in England when he had been coaching a Division II school in football. And that was kind of me. I came from a programming position, which was unheard of, to become a GM. Um, and I really had only begun to think about taking a GM position a year before that myself. So when they named, I really think I was a long shot for this. But I got it, and I was thrilled, but well, also woefully unprepared. Well, you, you can be uh, self-deprecating if you want to, but I have some reinforcing uh, words from other people who worked for you that we'll get to during this podcast because, uh, like I said, uh, I actually started working here before you got here because uh, I, I started working here in high school. I, I did not work here full-time until uh, you were well-established as GM, but I know so many people who, uh, who talk about uh, you arriving and how that changed things and how it changed the culture of this place. And so you get the, the opportunity to come to Charlotte in 1992. Talk to me about what you were walking into. Uh, I want to know about the early days of Rick Jackson walking into this building and assuming control. What were you inheriting? Well, anybody who's in a management position or has any kind of leadership position, I think they'll understand this. It wasn't the fault of the people that were here, but this place was really in chaos at that point. It was because, really, frankly, in a great company, Jefferson Pilot, but they made a big mistake, and they put two people in charge of one staff. And that's really difficult to work. Um, had John Kilgo and Jerry Record here, and I think I don't blame them at all for that because I think it was really a mistake on the company's part to put two people in charge of a group of people. So where's my allegiance? Am my allegiance to this guy or that guy or this woman? And, and so uh, I kind of walked into a very fragile and unhappy group. I think I remember my first day in the office, I had a line out the door because. I, I met the staff and said, well, why don't you come see me if there's some problems? And the whole building lined up and they came in and wanted me to fix these problems right away. Or the truth was they fixed a lot of those problems just by having one person in charge. But I didn't do really much of anything. At that point, I knew instinctively I just needed to listen and learn because this, this radio station is unlike um, maybe – any other station in the country, in the country, except for those 25, 50,000-watt heritage stations that have been here forever. And they have an idea. But of the other 2,500 radio stations in America, the rest of them really don't. Because working for a station like this is completely unlike any other radio experience you'll ever have, which is why it's still my favorite. Um, and I'll, still, I'll always be thankful 
um, to the Lord and to the people who made that decision for putting me here because it's just a unique experience. Well, like I said, it won't be just me uh, talking about you and experiencing your uh, leadership. One of the guys that uh, is synonymous with your time here uh, actually had an earlier stint on WBT, uh, and then he went into TV for a few years, and then he came back to radio. When you got here, was it still called Sunny 107.9? Yeah. Okay. It was. So Sunny 107.9, which had, had been WBCY back in the 80s, and it was WBT-FM technically back then, but uh, they lured Bob Lacey to come back and do mornings. Uh, and Bob was on for uh, a year or two before they, you guys found Sherry Lynch. It was the Bob Lacey morning show back in uh, 1989 into 90 or something like that. But I talked to Bob in an earlier conversation as part of this podcast series, and I said, all right, what comes to mind when I say the name Rick Jackson? Rick Jackson um, was just one of the greatest people that I've ever interacted with in radio. And the station had gone through a terrible period with, I'm not going to mention the man's name. He was so bad, they walked him out of this company. This This is the worst guy that I've ever worked with, I think. They walked him out with an armed guard to make sure he got out and uh, brought in uh, psychologists to talk to the staff individually. That's how harmful this guy was. So they brought in Rick, and it was the exact opposite. This is a guy you could walk into his office any hour of the day, um, always upbeat, always um, thoughtful, always pushing you to do your best. And uh, Sherry and I, I think, stayed in Charlotte because of him. And, and a great general manager. I mean, this place was making a lot of money. And he just was such a people person. When Sherry and I walked into uh, his office after he had given notice, Sherry, women pay attention to details more than men do. I just sat down. Sherry looked over at the empty bookcase and started crying because she knew every woman I think, and a couple of guys were crying when that guy left. That, that, that's the impact that he had. Yeah, that's really great to hear. I, you know, I don't know how to respond to that other than to say, uh, you know, it's amazing what you can do when you're just nice to people. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I tried to be. I mean, you can't always be nice. There's always, you know, something you have to say. But you can do it in a nice way. And I, honestly, if I had a, a mantra for my leadership style, that was it. Even if I had to fire somebody, it's not something you have to be mean about. I usually tried to find something positive to tell them because I had to do a lot of that. Um, we had a lot of changes to make here when I got here. And uh, there were quite a few people that had to bite the dust to do that. And it was those are never easy. Um, but I felt like I didn't make a lot of enemies despite that. Somebody else who was already here when you got here but was still trying to find his way was John Hancock. He literally brought WBT back uh, financially and reputation-wise. And listen, he and I had our ups and downs over the years, but uh, when I think of Rick Jackson, I think nothing but positive thoughts. Uh, he uh, he left the radio station on uh, solid, solid ground, probably still the foundation that we uh, sit on. Wow. Yeah. You know, what he's referring to there with the ups and downs, the down was I hired um, a ridiculous PD. Um, back in uh, another era. Uh, And it was a mistake. And we all make them, and I made a big one with him. And John didn't like it, and I don't blame him for it, and he left. So when uh, when we made the inevitable move to remove this guy, 
John came back. And my first call after he was gone was to see if John wanted to come back. Or John called me. I can't remember which, to be honest with you. But I loved him. And uh, it was a huge blow to lose John. I hated that. Uh, he was the foundation of what we are as a local radio station uh, on in the talk arena, not a news because news was always important here, but we had to make some changes in our talk arena because we'd been a very um, fun personality driven radio station, not a politically driven radio station, but a a personality driven Henry Bogan, H.A. Thompson, extraordinary talents, but uh, not what the audience expected from us at that point. And John was the first one locally that came in and addressed that before I got here. So really, John probably owns that more than I do. Well, when I got here uh, working in the early part of 1990, I was a fill-in board op, but I was mesmerized by this place. I grew up here in Charlotte, uh, revering all these voices that I heard on the air. And so that was when you still had Henry Bogan was on the air. Mm H.A. Thompson was on the air. John Hancock initially uh, or eventually replaced H.A. And then H.A. actually did some some part-time stuff for a few years Mm -hmm. after that. But uh, you came in, and I said this at the 95th anniversary a few years ago. I said, WBT is old enough that you can look back and you could see. You hear people say, oh, that's the golden age of this station and the golden age of that. Well, WBT's been here so long, you could make that argument for several eras. Sure you could. Yeah. Um, and I knew when I got here that I was in the middle or the tail end of, of one, at least. I knew there was a transition company because those guys that we speak of in this particular golden era, and this is when you still had Lunas McGlowan walking around the building. And, <laughs> we you know, did. You, I mean, you, would, you had just, just legends. I mean, Bob Lacey's one of those two, and he had already moved on to his third act, yeah. which he's still doing now. Yeah. But you had uh, just almost like royalty walking around here and I knew that's a that's a situation you had to come into and I know you looked around and recognized that uh, you had some legendary talent but you also realized that looking down the road there was going to be a time in the not too distant future where WBT was going to have to make a transition the first person I heard when I got into town and remember this is before the internet when you could just call up any radio station you wanted in the world. And I came in in the evening, and and Henry was on. And I'd come from a market where KOA was sort of the equivalent to WBT there, a legendary station, three callers, 50,000 watts. And they had long before transitioned to a news and political talk machine. I mean, that's what they were. And we hadn't started that transition really yet, except for the hire of John locally and Rush had been on for a year before I got here. Um, so they had started that transition, and it was the right way to go. You can't just make it in one night or you know, one day. Uh, but Henry was talking about hood ornaments. Now, I'm going to stop you for a second, because I actually have you at Henry's uh, farewell roast out here on the, on the, on the patio uh, talking about this very story back from 1996. I've been with this company for 16 years now uh, in Denver before I came out to Charlotte. And uh, before I came here, I heard about this Hello Henry guy. And Bob Call, who was our general manager there, had all kinds of fascinating and funny stories to tell about Henry. And so I knew a little bit about him before I came here. But the first person I heard on the radio when I got arrived in Denver, I was over at the Compre Hotel, which is now, what is that, the Doubletree? Yeah, it's a Doubletree Hotel. And I pulled in the lot. and you know, Well, actually, I was on the way. And I'm, I'm listening. I turn on the radio to get that 1110 thing going. And there's Henry Bogan. And he's talking about hood ornaments. That was the subject of the night. 
And I thought, what the? <laughs> and I thought, well, this is just some goofy listener you let on the air. Surely it will change. For an hour, they talked about hood ornaments. And it was charming. I was fascinated. It was a great show. Only Henry could make a fascinating show out of hood ornaments, but somehow you did that. And I think that speaks to uh, the reason that people listen to Henry. It's not about the content. It's about him. Uh, he knows how to treat all of us. May those white azaleas always bloom in your world, Henry. Let me speak for all the folks in this room. Goodbye, Henry, and we love you. Now, that was back in uh, 1996. Henry passed away in 2006. Well, I came from a market where Rush was already on, and I was accustomed to hearing that kind of talk. So when I heard what we were doing at night, I thought my first reaction was, we're talking about hood ornaments. <laughs> and then I listened to Henry, and an hour later, I forgot I'd, I'd been listening for an hour because it was so entertaining, and it was so congenial and comfortable. And Henry was such an entertainer and so welcoming to everybody. I remember Pearl called that night. You remember Pearl? Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go now, on the highway, you take the Lord with you. Don't forget to say your prayers. You know what I do every morning when I get up? I say my prayers and, and read the Bible, and I just walk through the house thanking the Lord. I reckon them people across the road, I think I'm pretty, but I just thank the Lord. I say, well, I know I've got old arthritis, but when I get over yonder, I won't have to take no more arthritis. Yeah. All right, sis, i got to run. Okay, bye, Henry. Bye-bye, sissy. And stay out of bad company now. <laughs> okay. I love you now. Thank you, sweetie. Okay. And he just let her go. And I thought, you got to cut her off. And then the more she talked, the more I thought, yeah, he's doing the right thing there. She was she was interesting, and he just let uh, his audience carry the show often, and they did. Um, so it was a great lesson for me, and I knew after listening to Henry that this was going to take a while because my first day on the job here, I never got off the phone or away from the crowd outside my desk. I either had somebody coming to my desk crying <laughs> or somebody on the phone excuse my English, but bitching. I mean, they were mad at Sherry Lynch because they couldn't understand what that loudmouth woman was doing on the air, or they were mad because Rush was on the air and and he didn't know his place because they were not used to somebody being so bombastic. And if, if Rush is anything, he's certainly bombastic and incredibly talented, but it was new for this market. And it wasn't polite and it wasn't Southern. And uh, and they were upset. I you know I rarely got a call in support of either one of them. And uh, Clark Brown, who was our, our company president at that point, said, "Are we doing the right thing?" And I said, "Well, the ratings sure say that we are." Um, you know, even if a lot of our listeners didn't understand what we were doing, so it was a real hard line to walk between trying to appease the people I was talking to on the phone. And I spent all day for the first year of my life here. It just seems like I was on the phone constantly with complaints. Now, uh, the addition of Sherry happened while you were here, correct? No. She actually came about four months before I got here. Four months, okay. I can't take credit, really, for either one of those, you know, the two most important figures that drove ratings for either one of the radio stations because they were here already. Sherry Lynch and Rush Limbaugh? And Rush Limbaugh. Now, locally, John Hancock was clearly that guy uh, to take us into a new era. And Sherry was clearly uh, still, uh, along with Matt and Ramona, uh, still you know, kind of the face of that radio station. Now, back then, uh, did you foresee uh, how long Rush would go and how successful he would be? No. Um, 
I don't think I understood um, what he understood, which was there was a vacuum because, you know, he's, he's right about so many things. There is a liberal bias in radio, and there always has been. But it doesn't, it's not limited there. It's television. Um, it's newspapers. It's our academic um, structure. It really leans left. So where was the right? If you were, if you were a conservative, where was your voice? And so he understood that and just grabbed it by the throat and uh, never let go. And I understood it quickly enough. Three or four months into it, I could see where he was going with this, and I could understand. I was starting to get some phone calls from some people who, you know, threatened <clears throat> to boycott the radio station and bomb it if we, if we ever fired him because we were getting a lot of pressure to do that. The newspaper was calling for it. Our, our existing listeners, our older listeners certainly were. It was a tempestuous time for me and for everybody here to figure out where we were headed. Now, let me uh, – actually, I'm, I'm jumping all over the map time-wise here, but I'll, I'll get us back on uh, equilibrium here in a minute. But we were talking about Henry Bogan, and you've mm-hmm. got a time uh, that you're navigating this place through as general manager where you've got Rush Limbaugh on the air, mm-hmm. but you also have Henry Bogan on, on at night still. So you're sort of – you got one foot in this uh, this – wave of Rush Limbaugh and conservative talk that's uh, catching fire on so many stations. You are right in the middle. You got one foot in the heritage and you got one foot in uh, full speed ahead forward. I'll give you the business answer. The business answer was when I was hired here, Bill Blackwell and and Clark Brown, who were the, um, the president of the company and the president of the radio division, gave me a mandate. Um, they hadn't made money at WBT, this has shocked everybody, but they hadn't made money in almost 12 years. It had been since the 19, about 1980 or so, the last time when they made a profit at WBT. And look, you know, business is a business. You know, I don't know that BT had to be the cash cow for the company, but they had to make money. And they were seriously considering whether or not BT had a future because they were just tired of it. You know, every quarterly session would come around, every annual meeting would come around, and there's WBT, this kind of a boat anchor, who was our flagship station. But when it came to the finances of it, BT was really just a a difficult proposition. So I had to figure out how to make some money at the radio station and also not rip the Band-Aid off because this is not a situation where I could do that. And I instinctively understood that, that we couldn't just change everything today. We'd lose our listenership that was really supporting the station for whatever money we were making at that point. And I knew I couldn't do that. And I knew Henry was the key to that. Um, A, Henry was on nights. And so from a financial standpoint, nights aren't as important. But Henry was. Because from a financial standpoint, morning drive and middays and afternoons were, you know, that's 90% of your money. So I knew I could leave Henry on and it wouldn't hurt, damage us financially. And I knew that I couldn't fire him anyway. And I didn't want to because I enjoyed him. And I thought that the people that had supported us through all those lean years had to have a place to go. So... I immediately decided that was going to have its own life, and whenever Henry decided he wanted to retire, then he would. And he finally made that decision, but I wasn't going to be the one. And he did in uh, 1996, and then I remember the summer of 1996, you had Bruce Williams in syndication for a while, and then Jerry Klein ultimately Mm -hmm. replaced Henry. Jerry had been on late at night, and uh, Jerry was, uh, if you think Rush Limbaugh's to the right, Jerry was all the way the other direction, uh, the late Jerry Klein, uh, uh, rest in peace, uh, but... 
So talk for me for just a minute about uh, the transition once Henry left, having to navigate that, because you have to do that delicately, too. I had a program director in Marie June Rose that wasn't real fond of that direction either, and she was the program director, and I respected her. She's very smart and had made great decisions as a PD, and I wanted to keep her. Um, And she was not fond of uh, becoming just a one-sided conservative radio station. She wanted to make this change. And so we did. And, And actually, that era is my favorite because Jerry at that time offered everybody a chance to hear a different voice and that sort of um, that great conflict of having conversations that uh, Jerry was very capable of of, uh, supporting his point of view on. He was. He was a very bright guy and I think converted some people. Um, That wasn't the point of it. It was really kind of of the yin and yang of uh, having Rush on and having Jerry on too. Um, So that was an abrupt change for sure in a lot of ways. But it was also a lot of fun because Jerry, Jerry didn't back down. You hear both sides on WBT radio. Rush Limbaugh, Jerry Klein. Uh, Rush Limbaugh's on this radio station? Jerry Klein, late nights on 1110 WBT. And um, I'm a little ornery at times. I certainly was in the 90s when I was first on the air. Jerry, you condone people's character, whether it is defunct in the worst time connotation and you seem to just let it go by the wayside oh cordelia you know you know you keep wanting to call over and over again and try to talk you know hush i'm not i I let you talk now now hush it's amazing to me that you continue to believe that you can impose what you can what you believe to be morality and ethics on everybody else and that you have the only right answer as to what constitutes well, you, you, that you, you never want to hear my point of view no your your point of view is a broken record cordelia you start whining about women who have babies that they can't afford you start talking about all the rest of that stuff and it gets old thank you for your call terry how are you Hello. Boy, they're ganging up on you there. Well, you know, let him try. And he was a smart guy, and if you were going to try and challenge him, you better have some substance. Let me go back to 1993. This is October of 1993. You're listening to live coverage of the NFL franchise announcement from Chicago, where uh, the Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion team. Live coverage here on News Radio 1110 WBT, and Jerry Richardson is Richardson is just about ready to speak uh, to the uh, the gathered multitudes in Chicago, shaking hands now with Paul Tagliabue, who you just heard moments ago made the announcement that we've been uh, waiting for for weeks, and uh, on this one day alone, it seemed like forever. Here's Jerry Richardson from Chicago. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to say that obviously this is a this is a dream come true for me and my partners who are many of us here tonight, and especially uh, a dream come uh, true for uh, 10 million people back in the Carolinas that have gone to bat for us and worked every well been with us every step of the way, and I'm very grateful for that. And also, if there's a I don't know where there's a camera that looks like it's from the Carolinas, but I want to talk to that camera if I could. All of you people that bought all of those 40,000-plus PSLs, you helped make history today. Pat yourself on the back. When I get back to Charlotte, I'm going to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I remember that well. So that was the day that they made the announcement. Uh, You heard John Stokes there, WBT Hall of Famer, and uh, that broadcast had uh, Henry Bogan and Jim Zoki and Brad Schultz and uh, the all hands on deck. That was 
a huge day for this city. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about what led up to that day, because you remember being here and uh, spearheading uh, the effort to ultimately have WBT be the first ever flagship station for this NFL franchise. Yeah, we had pursued that heavily for several years because we knew that there was an effort being made and we wanted to help them make the effort. And we did. We helped them in a lot of different ways. But we also wanted to ensure that if we got that team, we were the broadcast right holder. I thought that was imperative. I just thought that was going to be critical to our future success. And as it turned out, it was. Um, because to have the Panthers uh, gave us that future look of being uh, relevant. And obviously, having the Panthers play-by-play here was just a, it was a game-changer. Um, not to be too trite about it, but it was a game-changer. And I was there when they made that announcement, and we'd been following them all over the place. We'd been in Memphis and in Jacksonville, and uh, we were there in Chicago. That was a zoo. You've kn- I don't know how many times you've been around something like that, Bo, but it was, there must have been four or five hundred reporters there in this little room. There wasn't room to breathe. And we didn't know what the outcome would be. That's what I was going to ask you, because it ended up being Charlotte and Jacksonville. I did not know, or I don't know, uh, who else was in the running or, or how likely it was. You know, How good did you feel about that announcement coming uh, before it happened? I really didn't have a feel for it. Memphis was was uh, a big player then too and they yeah. had a they had a rich owner that was making a, a compelling offer um and you know there were a lot of other people i don't remember them all but at one time i think there were like 12 different cities they were considering but you know i felt pretty confident that we were at least in the running for it but it was worth the effort regardless you know i spent a lot of time with jim zoki and jim zoki didn't know he didn't want to be with me again ever again because <laughs> uh, you know between hotel rooms and bad meals we followed them all around the country just to make sure that we were always present now, when they made that announcement that we just heard, did you know yet that BT was going to be the flagship station? No. No, we still, you know, that was still all to be TBD. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and people, and this is kind of inside baseball, but it's uh, it's context that you sort of need. WBT, uh, when you started this uh, with the Carolina Panthers radio network, the radio station was instrumental in building that network, right? And yeah. uh, the first five years, uh, as I understand it, everything was produced and, I mean, it was sold. It was, it was a joint venture with Capital Broadcasting in Raleigh. Right. But talk to me about how that, that initial broadcast entity was built. Well, we had to pay a lot of money for them, and I won't tell you what that was, but it was a lot. And we had to cover that um, somehow. And I couldn't figure out a way to do that locally. We had to have a network to make it work. So I called George Habel at Capital Networks, and he had actually been thinking about the same thing. I said, why don't we join forces, because this is what you do. You build regional, especially between the two states, they built networks. They had a news network and traffic and those kinds of things. And so he knew how to do that. And uh, could sell the network. And so there was a lot of interest, as you can imagine, early on. I think we had 120-some stations on the network at that mm-hmm. point. I'm not sure what there are now, but I would guess it'd be more like 30 or 40. Yeah. Um, but uh, that network was it was really important because they actually got the team because uh, Mr. Richardson, and no one ever called him Jerry, Mr. Richardson had sold them on the idea that it's not just Charlotte, but are in the surrounding area, Greensboro and Raleigh and the Triad and South Carolina, there were 8 million people available. And that got their attention. So we kind of had to do the same thing. We had to kind of sell our network based on those 8 million people. And so we built the network that way. How important and instrumental was that 
happening that I mean, it's two things. The, the, the team is awarded to Charlotte, but WBT becomes the flagship station. How big a deal was that in riding the ship of this company that you had been commissioned to make money for again? How big a deal were the Panthers in that? There's John Hancock and Rush Limbaugh. That's the beginning of it. And those two um, were critical. Would I say that the Panthers were critical? Yeah, but not at that same level. Rush and John were the keys. Um, after that, the Panthers, yeah, I think that they were, you know, right, you know, right below that because if it had gone someplace else, maybe somebody could have taken that from us or, you know, that image of being the news provider, the talk provider in Charlotte. So I think it was instrumental, yeah. Well, and uh, I guess you also have to say that the novelty of a team, I don't know how long that lasts. You get a couple of years out of it at least. I saw the Hornets when they came here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the Hornets, to a larger degree, uh, when you talk about being a novelty and being the, the only game in town, I mean, that was it. That yeah. was the sporting. Before that, you had some college teams, and you had, I mean, I remember I always say to people, uh, I remember 1987, the year before the Hornets got here, you know, it used to be that if you looked at the cover of the phone book, that would sort of be an indicator of what the hip happening thing that people wanted you to know. And sure, it was the Ramses exhibit at the Mint Museum. Museum. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> the year before. And, and that's a good thing, but it, it's not even something we own. Right. Well, yeah. and so then the Hornets came the year after that. WBT was the flagship station. Uh, the Panthers. W- was it in your head? I mean, uh, did you have this sense that uh, if the NFL is going to come to Charlotte, they must be on WBT? We can't miss out on this as an image type thing. Yeah. That, no, that was absolutely. Um, that's why we spent so much time chasing them around. And that's exactly what we did. We looked like a couple of teenage kids chasing a girl. I mean, we were just, <laughs> any place they were, we were chasing them and making sure that, that they were aware that we were enthusiastic and would be great partners. And as it turned out, um, it was a great relationship with, for years. The day that you had the meeting here that you announced that BT had gotten the rights to be the flagship station, there's a picture or there are a series of pictures uh, that were on the wall for a while. And if I'm if I'm correct about this, you weren't there at the beginning of the meeting or maybe you were, but they didn't know because you came in in the Panther outfit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, you come with some crazy ideas and it was, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, we thought it should be fun. Yeah. um, And, uh, and it was a fun way to do it. Well, that reinforced to me, if Rick Jackson's going to dress up like a Panther, this must be a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) It was a big deal. I can't tell you. I wet my pants when we found out about that one. (laughs) Obviously I needed, uh, I needed some Pampers for that. It was, uh, it it was a huge day. We'd been we'd spent so much time on it, and it really it was the only place that they should have gone. And I, I think even if we hadn't chased them around so much, it probably would have come to BT anyway because it's where they belonged. And they actually had a little burp on that in the middle of uh, their tenure, um, and discovered what we knew already is that there's no place else for them to be. And and what you mentioned is uh, the Panthers, after the first five years, uh, went to another station for five more years, and then they came back. Um, uh, I want to hit one more thing on the Panthers before we move on to something else, and this uh, figures into, okay, once you get the rights to the team, then you got to start building not only a sales force, you got to build a broadcast team. Right. And one of, the, one of the most important decisions that I think uh, was ever made with that, and I'm about to find out how how uh, much you had to do with that. But, you know, Bill Rosinski was, uh, I, I don't think you could have chosen, I mean, to me, and, and, and no disrespect to Mick Mixon, because I, I've had him in here for a conversation. Right. I've actually had Bill and Mick in this same podcast series and, and told them, sitting right where you are, uh, each of you have been very important to this team's broadcast history uh, 
for the times you've been here. But Bill Rosinski in those beginning days uh, gave you a sense of added importance that this was, you knew it was a big deal, but oh. then Bill Bill just sounded like a big deal. Carolina Panther football history about to begin. Sisson ready. The Hall of Fame game is underway. End over end down the middle of the field. This is Baldwin at the nine-yard line. All the way to the 20, 25. Randy Baldwin going across the 35, up near the 39-yard line. It'll be first and 10 there for the Carolina Panthers. Nice return from the 9 to the 39. I want to play a clip for you. So, I, again, I, I felt pretty confident about uh, the job, but the Falcon position was still there. And I remember, I remember Char, it was Charlie, Charlie Dayton said to me, he said, you know, uh, are, are, are you going to, uh, you know, hold one against the other? And, like, if we make you an offer, are you then going to go? I said, no, that's not how I work. Mm -hmm. I said, I've got their offer. When you guys tell me what your offer is. So Rick Jackson called me. I was going on a golf trip. I was driving over to Kiowa from Atlanta, and he called me on the phone. He said, you're the guy, Bill. I'm going to hire you. So that was probably in March because I remember I was I was there in April for the draft mm -hmm. at Carowinds. <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had our big Carowinds show at the draft. Like, what did that have to do with the Panthers? I don't know. but uh, And then that began a 10-year uh, run. Well, I have to tell you, the first time I ever saw you, I didn't meet you that day. I think I met you later on when you started doing the morning show. The first time I ever saw you, though, because, you know, I grew up working here. And uh, before, I guess this was what, this would have been uh, 1995, the, the first season. And so one of the things I did when I was going to school at Davidson is I would come here and I would fill in on shifts, production shifts that they needed when other people would take time off. So I'm down here one day. I'm sitting in that studio across the hall and I'm sitting in that room uh, answering phones for Henry Bogan <laughs> all right so and Henry's in there and I'm in there and I don't know who else maybe a couple of other people and we're talking and then all of a sudden Henry goes shh everybody pipe down listen listen watch Bill Rosinski walks past the window and he says, there goes the voice. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, reinforcing uh, that, that booming voice. I mean, Bill Rosinski, uh, and, and in our podcast, we talked uh, about you a little. He, he's a huge fan. You know that. But that was a, a Jim Zoki, uh, Bill Rosinski, and Roman Gabriel. There's that first team that right. you, uh, you helped put together. And uh, th those guys together were, were, uh, were like radio gold. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Bill Rosinski is the best play-by-play -play voice I've ever heard. The best. I mean, I, I, he could be difficult. And he had some difficulties with the Panthers, which is, eventually cost him his job. Um, because at that point, we weren't in control of the broadcast team. After, I think, five years, I think we gave up on that. The Panthers took everything in-house, and we just carried the games. But originally, we had to hire that broadcast team. And i got to tell you a funny story. Um, i, I got to give Scott Kreitz, who was our director of sales at that time, credit because he had come from Atlanta and knew Bill and suggested him to him. And the moment I heard his voice, I thought, that's our guy. But the Panthers didn't think so. Really? No. They didn't, uh, they didn't want Bill. They didn't, they didn't care about the broadcast end of it, whether he was good at it or not. They wanted somebody that they felt like would represent the Carolinas. They wanted an indigenous voice, someone from North Carolina. And they had a guy from uh, North Carolina State University that they wanted who was fine, but he wasn't Bill. And so we had a fight over that. Uh, was a, we had a pretty big fight over it. And so I said, well, I'll tell you what. Let's sit down and listen to the tapes of the people that we have, because I don't want that person that you suggested, and you don't want the guy that we've got. 
So we'll sit down and we'll make a decision together. So we we did what you've you've seen people do. We have a big cardboard box full of 107 cassettes. And we sat down and listened to about 12 before Jerry gave up. Sorry, <laughs> Mr. Richardson gave up. He just looked at me and said, you guys make a decision. <laughs> and so it was me and Bill Polian and our program director, Mary June Rose and Jim Zoki, and we're listening to these tapes. And finally, they just gave in. I think we just wore them down. Talk to me about Jim Zoki for a minute. Uh, Jim Zoki is still here. Uh, Jim Zoki uh, was here when I got here. He was here when you got here. Uh, he's been Jeff Pilot, meaning he's been the airborne traffic reporter. Uh, he's done a lot of things. He was even telling me things the other day that I, I didn't know that he did. But he, he's been around the block, and yet all these years later, uh, he still sits across from me in the morning when I, I start my show, and he does sports on my show. And on Sunday afternoons, uh, he's, in his, he's in his wheelhouse. He's, he's uh, not only uh, the color commentator on that broadcast team, but you know he, he hosts the entire broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know what Rick Jackson thinks of when I say the name Jim Zoki. I love him. I truly love him. Um, he just, you know, it, at one point when Jim, when we made a change on the anchor position, I wanted Jim to go into that position. Uh, but at that point, we weren't in charge of the broadcast team. Initially, we were, but later they took it over. And I was really disappointed that they didn't give it to him because I thought he deserved it. But he's he and Dave, Dave Langton, who does the, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of the fact that two of the four people we hired for that broadcast are still there, Jim and Dave. And uh, no one's better than Dave at producing that show. And Jim is just so smart, so funny and so agreeable. What a kind, wonderful human being he is. I just can't say enough good things about him. And as a broadcaster, uh, he's unequaled. So uh, the Panthers were a big deal. The Hornets were still on WBT at that time. You made a decision in 1996 that uh, really changed the face of the station for several years. And it's the first time that I can recall where on a regular basis we split the uh, AM and the FM signal. Now, we did it sometimes where there were conflicts with Panthers and Hornets games and Tar Heel games. But in 1996, uh, we split the signals on a regular basis in the afternoons, uh, meaning you could listen to to one thing on 1110, which at that point in time was Mike Collins in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then on 99.3, he's the only guy here uh, who, well, I take that back. He was the first guy here. Uh, he's the only guy on WBT that ever had his own studio. <laughs> and and so for many years uh, preceding him, it was called Studio B. And then it became Studio V. And you know where I'm going with this. I got a clip here from the next guy I want to get your thoughts on. There was a bidding going on on who was going to get the Hornets. Yeah. And I was the analyst for the Hornets. Okay. And Macon Moy was the general manager. And uh, Macon Moy goes, well, what are you going to do? I would like you to stay here. So I went in. I never used an agent. I've had guys that wanted to be. So I went in. Well, they're going to offer me this, and I get to do my show, and I get to still travel with the team and do the show from the road. Mm-hmm. And then eventually a parlay, too, because I was doing pre- and post-game radio, that pre-game, post-game call-in show for the Panther games. And, and just as a point of context, the Hornets' flagship station during that time was WBT. That's right. And the, and the Panthers, which we'll get to in a moment. Right. So um, Rick Jackson. General manager. Yeah. Wanted to chat. Macon Moy goes, wonderful guy, Macon Boy. Loved him to death. And he goes, uh, okay. 
So it's just like a scene from a movie. Gets out a pen, takes a piece of paper, scribbles an amount, slides it across the table. He goes, <laughs> I'll pay you that. And it was a six-figure contract for back in the day, which was amazing. Uh-huh. And I said, okay, we'll talk tomorrow. And then I met with Rick and saw what the opportunities were going to be. And Rick was so honest. He says, I can't pay you what they're paying you year one, but we can do a progressive contract, but we'd like to have you here. Do the games, do your show, and we'll make arrangements with the team and all. When you're traveling, you can do your show from the road. And I didn't wasn't ready to give up the NBA. If I stayed at the other place, I would have to have given up my Mm-hmm. auxiliary right. projects. I wasn't ready, so I came here. That's the voice of Jerry V., Jerry Valancourt, and uh, he remained on the air here through 2002 when the uh, Charlotte Hornets became the New Orleans Hornets and, and left to go uh, to the Big Easy. He went with them for a few years, but mm-hmm. uh, the Jerry V. decision, uh, he was known uh, in the market doing sports talk on uh, other stations. But that move, I mean, I remember I worked here, and that one kind of caught me by surprise. That was a, a, a big change of culture move as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we took kind of baby steps on our way to uh, being whatever we were going to be. And he was one of those steps, um, and an important one. <laughs> I love that guy. He's such a colorful personality. You know, I was talking about Bill Rosinski being the greatest play-by-play guy I've ever heard. Well, the best team I've ever heard is Steve Martin and Jerry Valancourt. I thought that team was as good as it could possibly be. He was, it was perfect. I mean, you had Steve, who was just the consummate play-by-play guy for the, and you could actually see everything going on on the court when Steve Martin described the game. And then you had this wild-ass character over here with Jerry <laughs> Valancourt, and Jerry would just take off on some things, and he was funny. And it was, and he was truly a colorful, colored play-by-play guy. So I loved that team, and I loved that change. Uh, it didn't work out exactly like we thought it would, but I'd do it again. Well, that wild-ass guy that you're talking about, so you, you, you liked what you heard on the radio. So then in, in uh, 1996, uh, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Jerry went into this studio down the hall, uh, Studio B or Studio V, as he called it, because he had a big V sign when he walked into the door. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he had, his, he had a producer. He's the first guy I ever knew, and I told him this when he was here, you're the first guy I ever knew who used one of those instant replay machines and really started yeah. working production into and sound. Sound effects. Uh, he he incorporated that into WBT uh, in a way that you had not heard before. Yeah, he had a producer's mindset, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. did. I mean, he's he was very uh, instrumental in me wanting to do this because uh, I've always had a, a producer's ear. Oh gosh, you were the you are the one. But that's the first show, and I told Jerry this when he was here. That's the first. He's the first guy in this building who gave me a shot to do some things for him, and and then he realized that uh, okay, I give this kid you know yeah, this guy a can more do room. it. Uh, this could actually be a, a good relationship, and so. I got to know Jerry, but but so Jerry came on the air from 4 to 6 o'clock, and so you had Mike Collins on the AM, you had Jerry V on the FM, and then at 6.30, you had Jerry on for another hour and a half when you, you simulcast both both shows, but it was a kind of a hybrid deal that at the time was very, very avant-garde for anybody who'd ever listened to BT before, but I, I really, you talk about Hancock, and I, I, I truly believe Hancock was the, he ushered in 
talk radio at Charlotte. New era. Jerry took it to a different level, and um, Hancock and Jerry were the first people that were ever on WBT who actually hung up on people, <laughs> you know, and, and didn't care. And yeah. and there were a lot of the WBT audience that had to really get used to that, and uh, I'm sure some of them bailed. But by the same token, uh, I'm sure you brought in a whole new audience. I mean, Jerry V was tapping into that, that young uh, vibe that I know uh, yeah. you knew you needed. Yeah. Oh, God. He was... He did big-time personality. I mean, I saw him at a pharmacy a couple of months ago, and we had a couple of laughs together while we were there. Just ran into each other. He started doing his show in front of you, didn't he? Yeah, well, he always does. (laughs) You know, it's either that or eating donuts, one or the other, because he loves donuts. But uh, he was a big-time personality, still is, and uh, that was a fun era. And that was a, you know, one thing I guess I'd have to give myself credit for is I've never afraid to try something a little different and some of them panned out some some things didn't but that's where the fun is really in this business is trying something new and it turns the light switch on 1997 was a big year uh two things that uh, you were instrumental in uh, that would change the course of the history of the radio station one of them was all about the history of the radio station and i'll get to that in a moment but the other thing and i know this very well because uh, the first full-time job that i had here uh, i was hired uh out of college in 1997 and i thought that i was coming to work here uh, when i was done i knew i had a job because i'd worked you know behind the scenes long enough that they knew when i finished they wanted to have me around to do something but i got a, <laughs> i got a call from the program director uh, Randall Bloomquist, and I thought he was going to tell me that I was going to start producing Jerry's show. And he said, well, you're going to be a producer, but we're going to change one thing. Uh, we're going to put you in the morning, provided that you hit it off with this guy that I want you to come meet on Saturday morning. Uh, he's flying in. We've hired him to do mornings. Uh, he's coming from, uh, 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 at that point in time, I guess he was coming from Tampa, Tampa or Atlanta. I lose track of all the places that Al Gardner worked. But Al Gardner arriving here in 1997, you talk about changing of an era, mm-hmm. uh, and he would be here for uh, for nearly 15 years, which is the longest tenure for a morning show host since Grady Cole. I met Al Gardner in Atlanta. That's where he was at the time. And we went down to Atlanta. I met him in the, in the parking lot first because he was waiting for us when we got down there to go see him and talk to him about this job. And he showed up. As just, it's so typical. You'll know, you'll know exactly what I'm going to say. His belt buckle, his belt was just <laughs> hanging yes. because it, it was just, it was so worn. He was wearing a pair of old shoes that weren't tied. He never tied his shoes. That was one of those trademark things about Al Gardner. But the substantive part about him is he was the perfect old school, new school guy. He was the friendliest, most sincere, supportive, positive man I think I've ever met. The power of positive thinking was his way of living. Um, So our audience immediately cottoned to him because they could understand that he knew what it was to be polite. But he was also a veteran newscaster. He knew how to he knew interviews were so good with Al Gardner because he could ask you a really friendly question that was really cutting. But he would do it in the most friendly way that they'd have to give you an answer, and he'd get to the bottom of an issue. He was exceptional. Um, Al Gardner, and, and a great friend, and a really nice person. Al Gardner had this to say about you. Rick Jackson called, and he put me on speaker, and we started talking. And you know Rick. You worked for Rick. 
Rick Jackson and Bill White, to me, are the two finest people that I've ever known in the business in terms of management. So on the phone, I start talking to Rick Jackson. And the second I talked to him and he was interviewing me, I kind of wanted to know what kind of person he was. Why was he in radio? What was his aim? Uh, what does he want to do with the radio station? What's important to him? How important is the sense of duty? Because to me, there are some who have in the past almost tried to ruin radio by using it as a forum for disinformation rather than to accept that sense of duty that you have when the storm hits or election night happens. And everything he said impressed me. And I remember leaving the phone saying to my wife, I've got to work for this man. This is this is a special guy. Wow. I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about Al's era, because Al was on the air for... And when I talked to him about a, about a year ago, I said, Al, I know where you've been. I know how long you've been doing this. And I can, uh, with uh, pretty decent authority, uh, say that I also know what the most memorable day and event in your career was. Uh, you were on the air. Al was on the air on 9-11-01. Uh, and I'll never forget the phrase he said. He watched the first plane hit, and that was on the air. And then he described the second plane hitting, and he said it would appear purposeful. WBT Live, we just witnessed on CBS and ABC on television, another plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. Uh, it would appear purposeful. And that always has stuck with me. Uh, just the fact that in the moment of that, mm -hmm. you know, when he said that, it carried a lot of weight as to what it meant. It's a second plane. Uh, obviously, this is not an accident. And and I talked to him about what was going through his head that day, but having him on the air that day for this station, uh, that was an important thing. Steady hand. I was there in the control room talking to him about what had happened with the first plane that hit the first building and trying to decide what was happening, number one, and how we were going to handle it when we were both watching the monitor and saw the second plane hit. And he was the first person I looked at. And I'll never forget that moment. It was uh, stunning. Neither one of us knew what to say because it was very clear then what had happened. And I left because I knew at that point he knew what to do. I actually looked at him and I said, Al, take the mic get this right. And I just left. I told him when I was talking to him in that same conversation in an earlier podcast, obviously I'm the guy who succeeded him in that chair and I have a different style than Al. But I said, one thing you can uh, uh, know going forward is, is the, the standard that you set for breaking news and how to develop a story and how to execute that on the air. Uh, that's ingrained in me. I mean, that's who I learned how to do it from. I think the reason he and I worked so well together when I was his producer is because we were on that same wavelength. We knew that when something happened, this is where Charlotte turns, this what radio station. What great preparation for you that was. Yeah. Wasn't it? I mean, when you think about learning from Al Gardner, and I don't know who you could have learned um, any better from. I mean, he was just, he's the epitome of what journalism needs to be and what uh, and so much of it has slipped since that time. Uh, kind of when he left, it seemed like the era seemed to go by the wayside, too. But when I think back on Al Gardner, I just, you know, I trusted him just implicitly to do the right thing. Anytime there was something important going on, I wanted John Stokes and Al Gardner in the same room. We should also mention his two co-hosts. 
from the area that he was here. Uh, Al had Al started by himself. Uh, I was in the room with him for the first couple of years, uh, and then Danny Fontana. And Danny Fontana, uh, uh, the late Danny Fontana, passed away back in 2015. But Danny, uh, back right when Jerry V started his show, Jerry started at 4, and you had Danny Fontana on at 3 o'clock. That's one of the other first moves that Randall made as a program director. But uh, Danny Fontana, what about some thoughts on him? I never met a guy that could smoke four cigars in one day. (laughs) Danny would start with a cigar in the morning. And then he'd get off the air, and he'd have another cigar before lunch, and then sometimes one afterwards, and always after dinner. He was always smoking a cigar. Um, and I never knew how he could do that, because I've had a cigar or two in my life, but, you know, give me a half a cigar, and I start to turn green. <laughs> he was a fantastic personality, in, in kind of in the same vein as Jerry V, and then he, was, he could be bombastic. Um, he was a salesman, for sure. And he would sell some things sometimes that were a little bit questionable, but it was Danny, and I think everybody kind of knew that. Danny was just sort of out there on the edge of things. But he really believed what he was saying. I don't think he was lying to anybody, but sometimes Danny would kind of, he'd kind of go off on a direction sometimes that was a little bit questionable. Uh, But uh, I have nothing but fond memories of being with him and spending time with him. I remember him as well for... Uh, dinners and for all the extracurricular stuff that he did between all the uh, symposiums he would have on how to invest in that kind of thing. But he was a critical part of that because he was a genuine personality. Much like, you know, Steve Martin needed someone next to him that could color things up and have fun. That was what Danny was. He was sort of the fun house for the morning show. And he could deliver. Well, and after Danny came Stacy Sims, and Stacy was there for 10 years, and Stacy actually uh, overlapped with me for uh, she was out a lot the first year I was here, so we, in the end, didn't do that much on the air together. But when I was hired to replace Al, it was with Stacy, And so uh, we, we were on the air until she uh, ultimately left at the end of 2012. Uh, I started in March of 2012. But uh, Stacy is best known for her run with Al. <laughs> she was um, – that's an interesting story because what the reason she did that – she was on with Bob and Sherry in the morning, and she would come in to promote things that were going on uh, in the news with WBTV. Mm-hmm. We had shared resources, and so we would help each other promote, you know, the other uh, the other places in uh, at one Julian Price place. And one day she came out of the studio, and I said, "You know, you really ought to get out of television where you're just reading stuff because you're so bright and such a you know such a wonderful personality. You should be in radio." And she laughed and walked off. And then she came back the next day and said, were you serious about that? And I said, yeah. She said, well, what would I do? I said, I don't know. Um, But I went back and thought about it and went to Al and talked to him about it, about, you know, what he thought about the idea. And he knew Stacy well. And he was immediately, yes, by all means. So I went to her with that idea and she made that change. One of the few people that ever went from television to radio. to radio, but I think it was a good move for her, and it w- worked out well for us and her. Well, I worked in uh, TV for three years before I came back here, and one thing that I learned, and the reason they hired me, I worked over at WCCB for a few years, and the reason that they hired me over there uh, essentially is because uh, they already had several radio people you know, that were now that had made the conversion to TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing. In, in television, I learned really quick, if you're a producer over there, uh, you write copy is what you do. And mm-hmm. you, you fill that 
teleprompter that the anchors in there read. So you got to be a good writer. But I also realized that when the teleprompter goes down, <laughs> a lot of those anchors, they don't have the improvisation skills. No. You get radio people. That's why Derek James is doing so well over there, because mm-hmm. you know him well. He came sure. from here. Yeah. I had a talk and a, you know, a radio background uh, with Matt and Ramona. It's why John Wilson is doing uh, so well over there. Yeah. I think, I mean, not the only reason, but I think a lot of people that you see, uh, and that environment was right, but, you know, John Hutchinson over there uh, liked to take, uh, you know, liked to take risks on, on TV. He did. And, and, what, and I went over there to produce a show called Fox News Edge at the time, which I finally realized, and I actually made the case to the, to the news director, Ken White, over there. I said, you're basically doing a radio show on TV. That's right. I, you know, I, th- I thought the same thing listening to that, and we never had that discussion before. And I said, if there's one thing I know is a radio show, so give me a shot. And so <laughs> well, it worked. It worked out for a few years. You know, that was kind of, John, talk, John Hancock talks about his time out. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's kind of my that's time right. out before I came back. So I said 1997 was a big year, okay? Yeah. 1997, uh, was the year that Al got here and started a new era with the morning show and really transitioned it from, uh, I mean, it was the last, in my eyes, was the last real piece of that that era that I was talking about where mm-hmm. you had Henry and you had Don Russell and you had uh, H.A., you know, that morning show sort of reset the whole station, I think. We had a news person. Yeah. We had a news person. And that's really what was needed. The other thing that happened in 1997 is you had the idea, and we touched on this at the beginning of the conversation, but you had this idea of creating a WBT Hall of Fame. Right. And uh, the Hall of Fame now uh, is, uh, let's see, what, there are 12 people in it, I think. We've added people every five years. Mm -hmm. We will add uh, several more at the 100th anniversary coming up. Right. But you talked about how you decided to do that. Well, how do you take the idea uh, from point A to, to point Z? I mean, how, how, did it, how did it come to fruition? You know, I just decided it was time. And, and, I, and I think it was, well, it was past time, really, because great radio stations like WBT, you know, look at how many stations in the last uh, 10 years have changed call letters. Even our station in our own building has changed the name of the station. Uh, stations just don't last that long. And when you've got one like this station that played such an important role, especially in the 1930s and 40s, when that was the only place you really, for a, a lot of rural people, could get news. So um, it had played such an, an an instrumental role in the growth of Charlotte and uh, informing the public here about what was happening in the world that it needed it needed a Hall of Fame. But I didn't think it was something we could do every year. Maybe if we just done one, we could. Or but I just felt like. You know, it's uh, even though we're 100 years old, it's just a radio station and there aren't that many people that work here. So I thought a five year, you know, increment was probably the right way to go because we'd be doing something because we do, you know, the 75th, the 80th, the 85th. And we just do it in harmony with that. Um, So we just did it um, and uh, found a bronze maker that could do the reliefs for us and uh, and an artist who could do uh, this. I'm glad to see that they continued that. Yeah, I was about to say it must be. uh, somewhat fulfilling for you to see that uh, you know, there have been names that have been added uh, to the to the wall. And and one thing I'm proud of, you never know. I mean, that started during a time here, uh, a different ownership. There have been, what, three, four changes over the years. And uh, every uh, ownership has realized that this is something they need to keep going. Mm-hmm. And so that goes back to your original vision. I mean, that wall has filled up now. Well, you know, and, you know, back then, I got to say, that both WBTV and WBT Radio had had been the heritage stations of both mediums. 
And there was a push back then. And I told you about the general, the general manager of the television station, who was not John Hutchinson, who I love. Uh, it was another person who tore all of that down and, you know, had, had felt as though he needed to get rid of the past in order to move on and have WBTV become an important and vibrant part of today's world. And uh, I just felt like, you know, how could you discard all of that and all of this history? So I felt it was really, I mean, for me, I felt equally the other way, that we kind of needed to, you know, acknowledge this because the world does change. And it's hard. It's hard for everybody to change. It's hard for me to hear changes uh, at my advancing age now at 68. Um, so I kind of understand the perspective even more than I did back then. But instinctively, I knew that we needed to make sure that the heritage of the station was recognized and that there was a permanent place for the people that had made those changes so important to the lives of the people that live here, a place to be. Do you remember uh, once you decided you were going to create it, trying to decide who the first person would no, be? No, there was never any question. It was Charles Crutchfield. Charles Crutchfield made the company. I mean, he was not only on the air, one of the first news people that we had, and a network anchor for CBS. Um, he was a part of the inauguration for Roosevelt um, and had to buy. There's that famous uh, 12 minutes of time he had to buy yeah. because the president was late. I remember that was on uh, September 15, 1936, during Roosevelt's campaign for re-election. The president was almost an hour late getting to Charlotte on account of a heavy rain, and here we were feeding the entire CBS network, and it looked like I was the one holding the bag. Why, I guess I had lived for 55 minutes straight. No script, no president, no nothing. Just 30,000 rain-soaked Democrats and one exhausted announcer. Why, you know, I got to where I was saying anything and everything I could think of. Now they're shifting the chairs on the platform. There goes Senator Bob Reynolds wearing a brown tweed suit. Uh, no, I don't believe it's tweed. Maybe it's not even Senator Reynolds. You know, just anything and everything that came to mind. The rain had been pouring down all that time, and believe me, I was getting desperate. But I knew it was a big broadcast for WBT, something everybody all over the country wanted to hear. And then, just before I gave out completely, everything began to pop at once. The rain let up and a rainbow came out in the sky. The crowds began to cheer and the band was playing. And then the president, taking full advantage of the blazing rainbow, opened his wonderful green pasture speech with a few ad-lib remarks I'll never forget. He was famous for that and then became a legendary president of the company, expanded both the television, radio station marketplaces. The company really stood as it was, as one of the finest in the country because of him. So it was that was easy. Now, when I go on the air in the morning, I often say that uh, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about whose shoulders I'm standing on. It's, it's not that I had this moment of, you know, thought uh, deliberately, but it's just sort of there. I was always, I'm always thinking about uh, Grady Cole, Ty Boyd, Al Gardner, all of those names. Uh, and I could name several more, but you know what I mean. I think about all the giants uh, just trying to live up to that standard. Um, when you were general manager here, did you have times or your thought, what would Charles Crutchfield do, or I'm here carrying on that particular I torch? asked him. <laughs> well, he was still alive, yeah. you know, so it was a wonderful thing because uh, we kind of hit it off. And uh, I had his secretary. Um, they weren't called assistants back then. I remember my first day on the job, she sat down in front of me, Margie Miller, and wanted to take dictation. 
And, you know, I didn't know why. I was, I was in my computer, and it was just it was another era. But it was wonderful to have her because she had the stories about him. And uh, we would have lunch now and then and talk about things. And he sent me the nicest letter I've ever gotten about the changes that he heard and was supportive of it. Um, no, but, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And I didn't know that, uh, that you had a relationship like that with him. Because one of the things I've asked... Uh, several of the people that have come in and sat down with me before, Bob Lacey was one of them. Um, uh, I asked H.A. this same question, uh, and Ty Boyd, too. I said, uh, what do you remember about Grady Cole? Did you have any kind of relationship with Grady Cole? Ty did to a degree because Ty replaced him, but it, was very, it wasn't what I thought he was going to say. It wasn't a real close relationship. It wasn't, um, you know, it was just a, a, a few stories, but nothing like they were pals, and, and he took them under his wing and had conversations. Mm-hmm kind of like you're talking about with with uh, Charles Crutchfield, or at least the opportunity to sit down and, and talk to a guy who had uh, blazed the trail. Uh, you know, Lacey was here the other day, and he was saying, I, I, you know, I, I didn't know uh, Grady. H.A. Uh, remembers the day that Grady passed away in a car accident in 1979. He remembers being on the air that day. But still, uh, even with Ty, there, you know, it, really what I've learned, not being able to talk to Grady Cole himself, is that when his era was done, as monumental and as... Uh, dominating as it was, uh, I mean, I think you could probably say he's still the most the most well-known media broadcast personality that's ever been on the air in these parts. Absolutely. On this station. I but agree. not many people knew him real well. And I think when he finished, as, as best as I can understand, he was pretty much done and left. He just kind of disappeared. Yeah. Well, were you here when Margie Miller retired? No. Because Charles Crutchfield came in and gave the speech that day. Or if I was, it might have been when I was, like I said, there was a period of time where I was. He might have been on the air doing something else, but he, uh, that guy had a voice. He had the voice of God. He really did. His voice was just booming and articulate and uh, wonderful. He was such a statesman. I felt about two feet tall. Uh, watching Margie retire, seeing that moment and hearing Crutchfield there to talk about her and watching him handle that crowd that day was just could never measure up and knew it. Um, He was just bigger than life. Uh, But none of us would be here if it hadn't been Charles Crutchfield. And really, that was my thought. That was a singular thought. There wouldn't be a single person in this building if it hadn't been for him. One of the things I'll always remember about you, uh, now you, you didn't do, uh, uh, you weren't on the air here uh, in Charlotte locally when you were general manager here, but we talked about your long radio career before that. You were on the air in a syndicated variety the whole time you were here and still do it now because uh, you used to, I would come in here, you know, I'd finish up for the day and you'd come in at like, uh, what, five or six o'clock a couple of nights a week mm-hmm. to produce your syndicated country show. Welcome in to Rick Jackson's Country Classics. Did you know that Merle Haggard was an inmate and in the audience at San Quentin Prison when Johnny Cash performed his first prison show there in 1958? Country music and crime have been handcuffed together since inception, and the stories of the who did what are as colorful as the music itself. And those stories and the music that fits the crime is what we'll be chasing after today. So put your hands up for our lockdown we call Country Crime. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I love country music. I learned to love it. It's been so good to me. 
um, and having worked for both KYGO and KSON, and of course people here won't know anything about those call letters, but they're legendary country stations. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I've never lost my love for it. And um, the history is what I was, you know, I guess maybe I would have been a historian if I hadn't been a broadcaster because I just <laughs> loved the history of, of the music. And if you watched Ken Burns' special on country music, which was mesmerizing for me, um, that's kind of what I wanted to do is I wanted to preserve those voices, um, the Grady Coles and Charles Crutchfield of country music, George Joneses and Merle Haggards and Hank Williams. I didn't want them to be forgotten. And so that's kind of how we started the show. And it's uh, more important to me now than ever. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to give that background and uh, at least establish that here in this conversation, because it's one of the reasons why you probably have uh, more affinity for the one group that is in the Hall of Fame uh, than, than anybody who's worked here, at least in modern times, and that would be the Briarhoppers. Mm. Boy, the Briarhoppers. Yeah, I still do. Um, all of those guys. Uh, you know, we had them at every every major event that, that we had. And I think people kind of looked at me funny. I think even our own staff sometimes were real fond of that because we'd show up and there'd be a bunch of these hicks. That's the way they saw it. Um, you know, I saw it as... These guys were the most popular act probably in the entire region in the 1930s and 40s. And Charles Crutchfield was a part of that. So Charles Crutchfield's in the Hall of Fame twice. He's the only one Mm -hmm. because he was the voice of uh, that. He was the MC for that show. But they were important and Whitey and, uh, well, all of those guys from the Briarhoppers were a part of our heritage. And to think that they were still here and still together, even some of the original members, um, was just made me giddy. Well, Tom Warlick is uh, the head of the modern-day uh, version of the Briar Hoppers, and they, I have no doubt they'll be at the 100th anniversary, and they were playing for us at the 95th. And we had the Avett brothers that, uh, in honor of John Hancock uh, back then, too. But Yeah, how uh, much fun was that? Yeah. That was great. I mean, it was, it was awesome. So uh, I'm not going to go through every member of the Hall of Fame, but a few years later, Ty Boyd was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's a Hall of Famer. But I want, my last piece of audio I have for you, I was in the studio, and I remember this like it was yesterday, but this was 2002 at the 80th anniversary. 938, privileged to sit next to Ty Boyd. Let's go to the telephone for a moment, Ty. Yeah. Can we do that for yeah. a second? Sure. Our general manager, Rick Jackson, is joining oh. us. Rick, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Al. Ty, how are you? Terrific, terrific. What's up? You know, it occurred to me while I was listening to you talk about the time that you were on the air, Ty, that so many things have changed about corporate America oh, and the competitive nature of all businesses. A uh, great example being uh, network television, because at that time when you were on the air, uh, I'll, I'll never forget, none of us will, Cronkite on the air, of course, the day that uh, John Kennedy was killed. Right. Mm-hmm. And thinking about uh, the era, you know, at that time, there were three people you got your news from on network television, and that was it. And there was one radio station, and that was it. And a, a different competitive time, now you've got uh, C-SPAN and CNN there are so many different places to get your news and information. And uh, it's, it's, we're so proud that we're still here and able to carry on. Are you thinking about my own career starting back in 1975 in radio and how much it's changed even for me Wow! Uh, since then? Uh, being now that there are 28 radio stations in Charlotte, and at the time that uh, I started on the air back in 1975, there were only nine. And so it, uh, you have this prolific um, surge of new business and, and competition that changes our lives in broadcasting forever, but it sure is fun to go back and listen to the era. When you were on, you were the voice. BT was the radio station. 
And uh, we still, of course, feel that way, and especially on a day like this, Ty, when we can have you back on the air for our 80th anniversary, which is a pretty remarkable thing. You know how to make a grown man cry, don't you? Uh, wow. Well, thank you so much. Oh, wait a minute. He's yeah. not through yet. Oh, excuse me. Well, let him go on. Well, uh, Ty, you know, you've been in the building for a long time, and you've, you've had a chance to walk through our hallways, and anyone who's been through the BTV and WBT studios, and of course, we share the studios down off of Freedom and, and Moorhead, know that we have uh, dedicated some studios, and I think you can tell right away where I'm going with this, Ty. Whoops. And we've dedicated some television studios uh, for WBTV. But because we have moved around in that building like uh, roaming nomads so much, we've never had a studio long enough that we could actually dedicate it. But uh, we have now. And, of course, that beautiful studio you're sitting in there now is uh, state-of-the-art, and it's permanent, and it is now yours. Uh, and let me read something to you, Ty. And, and uh, it, it is my pleasure to inform you and uh, all the audience and many of the people that work at the building don't know that we're going to do this until this very moment. And uh, we have a brass plaque with your likeness um, affixed to it that will be permanently outside of our studio where you're sitting now. And it will read this way. Ty Boyd Studio. Ty Boyd served WBT listeners across the Carolinas from 1961 to 1973. Ty's enthusiasm and positive outlook were an inspiration, comfort, and source of information and entertainment for those who listened each day to this legendary broadcasters. And uh, Ty, congratulations. You are the one and only person of history at uh, this radio station that now has a dedicated studio uh, named after you. Comment? Wow. I feel like an imposter. Good heavens. <laughs> who, could, who could deserve that? You are so fabulous, Rick. And, um, ooh, you... you, you <laughs> you know, it's wonderful, Rick. You really should see Ty's wow. face right now. This is this legendary professional, unflappable, who is a puddle. N- no. <clears throat> he can't well, talk. <laughs> Let's get his son in, Robert Boyd here. Uh, it was great because when Ty started age 30, he had a daughter. He didn't have yet yet have this man who's been no, a wonderful no. addition to our sales department. Robert, congrats to your dad. Hey, I, I didn't know about hey. this. In fact, I had to cancel a sales appointment. <laughs> and... Uh, Bo grabbed me in the hall and said, Robert, you might not want to leave. And so, <laughs> Is that right? So, wow. We were in here talking. Robert I, said, I'm on my way out the door. And I grabbed Bo and I said, listen, stop him now because you were going to <laughs> Statesville or somewhere. We can't let that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, if, Robert, I'm, I'm glad you're here. You can report to your mother that um, my conduct was no better than, <laughs> than, than it sounds. I, I was running the board that day, uh, you know, trying to keep all. I mean, we had so many people in that room, uh, but but that that's one day I'll never forget. And if you walk in the studio right now, uh, right above it, uh, and, and you walked in there uh, about an hour ago, it, it says Ty Boyd Studio. And there's not a day that goes by when I'm hosting where I don't say that at least once. But uh, <laughs> that was a great day. It was a great day. What a what a personable, wonderful man Ty Boyd was. And I was out of town for his funeral. And I literally uh, was with my wife and cried when I uh, found out that I wasn't going to be able to come because he was so meaningful to me and so supportive of me and everybody, really. Ty Boyd and and Al Gardner must be joined at the hip because I think their personalities are so close. They're just, they don't have a bad thing to say about anybody. Never did. I don't remember him ever saying something negative about someone. I'm going to tell you a story real quick, and we're going to land this plane soon, I promise. Uh, I was walking in one day because I worked the early morning hours for a spell with Al, and uh, Bob and Sherry 
did their show at the same time in the studio next door. I was the producer of uh, Al's show, Max. You know, Max, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Sweeten uh, was one of the producers for Bob and Sherry. And so you know this hall right up behind you, this long hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a good ways if you go from one end to the other. And so I'm walking behind Al coming in. Al doesn't realize I'm behind him, but I'm about uh, 15 feet behind Al. And Max is coming the other way. Max can see me and Al can see Max, but... Like I said, Al doesn't know I'm behind him and can see what's about to happen. So they're coming down the hall, and they get to each other, and you know the Al Gardner says, Max, good morning. How are you? And Max, without missing a beat, goes, go to hell, Al. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Max. And, and, And for a split second, there's this pause. There's this, like, Al Gardner, I, this does not compute. I, I, and then, and then there's this. I'm just kidding. Good to see you, Al. How's it going? <laughs> hey, Max, how you doing? I'll never forget that. But that's uh, that's classic Al meeting, uh, you know. And classic Max too. Yeah. It could be kind of sour sometimes. Sarcastic Max, but it was uh, it was funny. But that was so. I wanna I wanna come back around. There are some names I wanna mention just for short reaction. Uh, we've covered most of these names, but um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Mike Collins, for example. Mm-hmm. Mike Collins. What do you think of when I say Mike Collins? Um, I think of the consummate, maybe the best interviewer I've ever heard. Um, Mike was extraordinary when he had an interview. His politics were wrong for the station. Um, And I think Mike knew that. And we can all see it now. Mm -hmm. How comfortable is he on NPR? I mean, he just belongs there. And he has got a great show. And I'm so glad that his career worked out well. But that's one of those departures that uh, that I had to make with Mike, and uh, it was a difficult one. My first really difficult decision I had to make to take Mike off the air. Um, and we had a long cry together over it. And I think we're still friends, but it was a, but he was uh, absolutely terrific. He needed a different home, and he found it, and I'm proud of him. Mary June Rose. Uh, great program director. I would never have changed that position had she not gotten an offer from WGN in Chicago. Uh, where she thrived. She was exceptional. Uh, and following Mary June Rose, uh, and it was a, it was an interesting era here. I, I was here. Uh, in fact, that's when I, I got hired, actually, because I came back uh, out of college. But uh, Randall Bloomquist. We needed a change agent, and I knew that. Um, and uh, I didn't hire him as a hatchet man, but that's what he turned out to be. He made some good changes, made some bad changes. You know, eventually upset most of the people in the building and the press. Um, he did not have a good relationship with the press, and I actually had to take him out of that realm. Uh, in fact, it, it started a new era for me of controlling that because he got himself in some trouble. He did come in and make some great changes. He found Al Gardner. Um, he found a lot of the talent that we had behind the scenes and was uh, particularly effective at that. But in the end, leadership is about leading, and Randall wasn't a leader. One of the hires he made that we haven't talked about, but I can't, uh, I, I can't not mention, Carl East. Yeah, Carl. He's on the Appalachian Trail right now. I just I saw him <laughs> I on Facebook. He's out there doing the Appalachian Trail. Who would have figured? Um, another one of those people that you just can't say anything bad about because there's nothing bad to say. I mean, he was just as a he was a genuinely uplifting human being and really good at what he did. Yeah, he went on to. I mean, he he was uh, Randall's uh, assistant program director, and then eventually, uh, years down the line, would be program director of this station because he worked underneath the next guy that I want to mention to you, which is Bill White. Mm-hmm. Bill White's the best program director I ever worked with. 
Um, he was the best. He was a newsman at heart, uh, but understood the talk side of it, too. But when Bill White came in, that newsroom became what it should be. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked a lot about news um, today, but <laughs> I'll tell you, I was so thankful that we had Jim, Jim Barrel and John Stokes in our anchor chairs in Morning and Afternoon Drive for all of those years. So fortunate because both of them were extraordinary journalists, number one, balanced journalists, both of them. Great voices. They knew the medium inside and out and good human beings, too. And one of the uh, the hires that uh, was made around this time, uh, Pete Callender, who is back. WBT made the decision uh, a few months ago to, uh, for the first time in 30 years, go local uh, middays in, in the traditional rush spot. And a guy who was hired as a reporter in that area you're talking about and then became a talk show host in subsequent years and then left, much like I did, to kind of go and learn the basics of the business at a, at a higher degree somewhere else. Then Pete's back now. He's doing noon to three. So I'm sure seeing Pete back in that spot, uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. If I wanted to know what was going on in town, I'd ask Pete because he knew. He knew everything going on. And he wasn't just a reporter. He was an investigative reporter. And there's a difference there. Tara Savacious was the same way. They wouldn't back down. He was a bulldog. I mean, he would ask the toughest questions and the ones that you and I both want and need answers to when they were important issues. And he was that guy. Um, and absolutely terrific at it um and that's a great those are the those are really good seeds to watch a talk show host grow so i'm not surprised that he's become as effective as he has or that tara cervasius has also done very well uh in south carolina uh but he was he was that guy if you want to know what's going on you ask pete how about keith larson keith is a is the most oblique of the uh the guys that we hired uh, he would drive me crazy not being able to make a point. But while he was meandering and wandering around trying to figure out what I think his own mind was about it, he came up with the most interesting perspectives, and they were almost opposing one another, um, which made him interesting. For a while, he drove me crazy because I just felt like he needed to, to hone in on a point and make his point. Uh, and not spend so much time wandering around. But I learned to like that style because after a while you could see where he would do the whole globe instead of just one hemisphere. And that's the way his mind worked. And he left it to you to come up with your own conclusions based on what he had to say. And he was always well-read and prepared for that. And, uh, you know, uh, we talked about Al Gardner uh, on the air for almost 15 years. Uh, Keith was on the air for 14. So. Yeah, I was probably the least close to Keith of all the people that we've had, but at the same time a big supporter of his because I, would, uh, I learned to enjoy the way he got at a subject. How about Spires and Krantz? Oh, God, I hated that. I just... <laughs> I hate, I love that show so much. It probably is still the best show we ever had on the air. That, that they were so good together because you're talking about Jerry Klein. You know, you had Krantz, who was a, a bleeding liberal, and Richard Spires, who was pretty conservative. Now, I wouldn't say he was totally conservative, but mostly. And, uh, and funny. Both of them were funny. And that chemistry between those two was so good. And Richard blew it. Um, he had a, uh, a, you know, I still can't get into it because it was a legal issue back then. And I remember going on the air trying to explain to listeners without being able to explain mm -hmm. because it was a very contentious problem that he had with a local car dealer. Um, and he made some gigantic mistakes and there was no place to go but to fire him. Um, 
just had to be done. And so that left Brad out of work um, and left us without one of the best shows we've ever had. I, I loved that show. I agree with you. I've always kind of, I mean, it was a short, if people who don't know, uh, this was, uh, you know, right around 2000, 2001 and 2002. And uh, I, it was like lightning in a bottle. I mean, it was short lived, but man, it was oh, good. Oh, God, that was a good show. Um, oh, we just hated losing that show. And then what replaced that show, uh, and he's been, he's had several tours here, but Jason Lewis. Mm-hmm. What about Jason Lewis? Best political talk show host we've ever had by a long shot. I mean, he was. Ready and equipped every day. Knew his stuff. Um, You couldn't hoodwink him on anything. He was fantastic. And I want to come back around uh, to just some thoughts in general before we we get done here. People should know that when you inherited the reins in 1992, we talked about the fact that uh, Jefferson Pilot Communications, that was the umbrella. We had, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the management, higher management upstairs. And and Jefferson Pilot, JP, encompassed WBTV. Uh, it encompassed, uh, you know, the FM station, 107.9. The link at the time is what they were. So you're here in 1992, and it's JP all the way through 2006. And mm-hmm. then Lincoln Financial uh, acquires Jefferson Pilot, which would figure back, the Lincoln Financial part would figure back in your uh, direction uh, a little bit later, but the ownership. I mean, this this station has now been owned by uh, multiple entities in the last, you know, 15 years, and I've been through, I think, four in my lifetime here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, uh, back when I used, when I first started working here, Rick, people would always say, uh, I remember Mike Collins telling me, he was the PD at the time, he said, most stations, you know, change formats uh, every other year. Most mm-hmm. stations are owned by companies that change hands, you know, twice three times, four times in a decade. And we were used to that. And we were the the gold standard of stability. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that really changed. And that sort of began, I I don't know, I want to get you to explain it, because uh, your tenure ended here when when, uh, the station was bought. And then you went back and and worked in San Diego. But uh, talk about uh, the later days and and what ultimately led to, uh, to you leaving. Well, first, this will always be Jefferson Pilot to me. Yeah, well, me too. Uh, because uh, that culture, hopefully, is still in place. And so many other people are still here, starting with you, Bo. By the way, let me say this because I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to do it or not. Watching you go through all of the different incarnations and positions that you've held at the station, is there one you haven't had? I mean, you were, I haven't been in sales. You, <laughs> you've been all over this building. I mean, you're, you're really the culture maker now. That's who you are. You've got the most important shift on the radio station. Um, and you came from nowhere. High school, really. And I remember the first time you really got my attention was um, the fireworks show. And when I heard the soundtrack for the fireworks show and the way it had been put together to choreograph it, it was like, it was fantastic. Who did that? <laughs> and it was you. And I thought, man, that guy's got some talent. And I remember coming, I think I even came to tell you, you know, how impressed I was with what you'd done there. And, of course, that's such a small thing compared to what you're doing now. But, you know, you, you, um, you showed that promise back then. And to see where you are now, uh, it's got to give everybody hope inside. I mean, it's the way it should be done, building from within. That's what I really believed in when I came here was take, take the talent that you've got. And if they're not in the right position, well, let's find another place for them. Don't not necessarily have to fire somebody. Maybe they can do this or they can do something else. 
Stacey Sims was one of those. Um, and lot, there are lots of others. But to watch what you've done and now to be in the position that you are has been a thrill for me to watch you do that. And to hear you every morning on WBT is good for my heart because I know it's in great hands. It's sort of like what uh, we were talking about with Al Gardner earlier. Um, I left that control room knowing that Al Gardner knew exactly what to do on 9-11 after that second plane hit. There was no more need for any kind of conversation once we saw what had actually happened because we didn't see the first one, but we saw the second one. And it was a moment when I could just turn it over to him and never have another worry. And I feel that same way knowing that you are heading this cast here today. So congratulations. And I got to say it, I couldn't be more proud of you. Well, thank you. I mean, I I think you know how much that means uh, coming from you uh, to hear well, you, to hear you say something like that. Well, sitting there in that microphone is just an extension of Grady Cole and Ty Boyd and Al Gardner. And now we have Bo Thompson. And that's, uh, wow, that's the, that's the Mount Rushmore. Well, I, I, I agree with most of those names you just said. But <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I do, I, I view myself as the keeper of the flame. That's what I am right now. I do, uh, too. By default uh, on one one side. But uh, even if uh, that weren't the need, uh, that'd be the want because I love this station. I love this business. And the two of those merge. And it's why uh, I knew when I left here someday I'd come back, or at least I hoped I would. Mm-hmm. It felt like I had unfinished business. And obviously that ended up coming to fruition. But I, I do. Uh, somebody's got to be the keeper of the flame. And here we are marching towards. I mean, we're on the doorstep of 100 years. And the interesting thing about this project, this century podcast project no one's told me no yet everybody who's come through here uh has wanted to sit down and do what you've done and Mm. and and i tell everybody ahead of time it's going to take about an hour or an hour and a half i want to get through i don't want to just give this cursory mention because i've been part of of the uh, the years and i've headed up several of these celebrations uh the 100 is a different thing Obviously, mm. only few stations get to this mark, and we have to mm. do this right. So we've gone down this road of the podcast, and I've, I've sat with many people in these conversations, uh, and uh, everybody ends up saying, I'm really glad we're doing this because I never got to say some of these things. I'm glad you're doing this. Well, thank you. That's what I'm glad about because I know it's going to be done right. And I'll go back to your original question, which was about that transition area uh, era from 2006 to 2009 when we were sold to another company. And, uh, you know, leadership is a strange thing, but I've always kind of believed that if you want power, you probably shouldn't lead because people who want power tend not to be very good leaders. They tend to alienate people because it's all about them. It's about ego and those kinds of things. And we had a leader for the company that took over when we were sold from Lincoln. We couldn't have disagreed about leadership more. And I was either going to get fired or I was going to have to shoot him. <laughs> One of the other. And so I figured, well, that's probably not good because, you know, I get fired or I'll be incarcerated. So I had to leave because I could see uh, my leadership uh, tenants being ripped from their moors. And so that's why I left. And you went to San Diego. Went to San Diego, which was still owned by Lincoln Financial, Jefferson Pilot Extension. And you did that for how long? Six years. And then after that? They were sold. And And I'd been through that before. 
So was so, that the time to, to it was time to retire. Hang it up. And so yeah. that is Rick Jackson in, in twenty twenty one living uh, yeah. living uh, the life of a retired radio guy. How is that? It's great. <laughs> it's great. I miss it. You know, I really do. But, you know, I kind of, uh, I had my run and I knew it at the time I retired. I'd, I'd run it, my course, you know, I'd run the course and I had my radio show, which would you know, kind of allow me a tether to the industry. And it has and it'd been really enjoyable. And I can really focus on that show now. Uh, instead of having it, you know, be something I had to do in between time. I would be in this room we're sitting in right now. It's called Studio D. I would be as a a young whippersnapper. I'd be in this room and I'd be working on some production project. And on Friday nights in the evening, I get a knock on the door. That same glass door right there. They've renovated the room, but the bones are the same. And you say, <laughs> "Hey, hey, Bo, um, are, are you going to be done soon? I, I, I got to do my hee haw show." <laughs> and I think that's the way most people saw it. You know, I mean, if you're not a country fan, I'm sure that's what you'd say uh but you know that that was me just trying to be uh humorous i certainly don't look at it that oh, way oh no 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 and i but, would i would never say it if i didn't remember you saying it yeah. I, i've listened to the show and the fact that it's still around all these years later that that says it all right here but you know well you know it was important to me back then to make sure also that people understood that that wasn't where my focus was and it wasn't it was on this radio station i never wanted them to feel as though uh that was getting in the way uh, and, and that's especially true with the management team. I rarely run up that show with Clark Brown or Don Benson because I didn't want them to think that, that was compromising my ability as a GM. Well, uh, I, I maybe we'll do a, a part two someday because there are names that we could do whole, uh, you know, whole topics on, like David Medlock and 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 Larry Rideau and and people behind the scenes that that people listening right now may not recognize from listening to the station. But there were people that were part of your team over the years, Tom Jackson, that I can think of. That can I bring up one? Absolutely, because I think it means a lot. I mean, a lot of our listeners are clients. They're listeners, too. Um, Our most enthusiastic clients are also our listeners. And uh, that's a really important part of a station like WBT because we really combined all of those resources, including our clients who are really a part of our product, too. And Steve Sklenar was our uh, sales manager. And I can't take credit for any of my credit here without mentioning him because Steve Sklenar was an extraordinary leader and uh, changed our fortunes financially in a way that really can't be measured. It can financially, but it really can't from a culture standpoint. You talk to the people in the sales room that worked for Steve, and and the impact that he had on this building as a result of that was really important. So a lot of clients out there listening to this right now will say, yeah, because he was just a, he's a lovable guy, just as engaging as he could possibly be, and he made a huge, huge difference here. Well, you made an incredible difference, a huge difference here, and uh, I'm glad I've been able to uh, play some of the tape of others who have talked about you as well, because um, I'm the keeper of the flame, and you know I, 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 I tell people these stories on the air in the mornings, but I, I like for it to come alive, and I feel like it's in, in some way doing that uh, in this podcast series, but 14 years in Charlotte, and uh, he arrived in 1992. He left in October of, of 2009. Uh, Rick Jackson is uh, sitting in front of me. The last question that I have for you, WBT at 100 years. It happens on April 10th, 2022. What does it mean to you, uh, WBT at 100? Well, I'm euphoric. I think of Charles Crutchfield. I mean, that's the first thing I think of is Charles Crutchfield, the first person I thought about for the Hall of Fame. 
and what he built, and it's still here, and it's still important. It's still um, the most important radio station in Charlotte, or probably both Carolinas, to be honest with you, with 50,000 watts reaching all the way to Iceland sometimes. And we used to get cards from Sweden and Iceland. Yeah, that jingle's no joke. No, it's not. Uh, But you couldn't get us in Gastonia at night, but that's another story. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm so proud of him and for him and for everybody who ever worked here. There probably isn't one person who ever worked here who wouldn't say that was the highlight of their career. It was the highlight of mine, for sure. I'm so glad that I got a chance to be a part of this and to be a part of the Carolinas as a result of that. I apologize to all the folks uh, they, who think I'm a Yankee, even though I'm from Denver. But I guess, <laughs> you know, the old joke, you know, if you're from Argentina, you're still a Yankee if you're not from around here. But uh, they embraced me sooner or later at one point, and I embraced them from day one. And it's it was a privilege to be a part of this. And uh, I feel like once you work here, you're always a part of it. As long as guys like Bo Thompson are here to carry that flame, that's the feeling I get. Like, I'm still a part of it because I was a part of your career, and that's been a privilege, too. Well, it's been my privilege to have you on the podcast here. I can't imagine this series happening without you. And so I'm I'm glad we finally got to do it, and uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Bo. Thanks, Bo. 